So do you remember how final exams made you feel or make you feel if you're still a student? Anxious, maybe stressed, overwhelmed. I mean, they're trying to pack a whole semester into one test. Uh, sometimes for me, it was just a sense of readiness. Whether I'm ready or not, I'm ready for it to be done. Ready for the class to be over, get my credits, move on. Uh, and don't worry, even though this sermon is called final exam, there won't be any tests pass out. The only papers I have up here are for me, not for you. So uh, just think about how final exams made you feel or make you feel. And consider, consider this possibility, even if it's totally foreign to your experience. Consider you walk into that classroom for the final exam and you're not stressed, you're calm, you're assured. Not because the class has been easy or because there is no final to take, but just because throughout the whole semester you've been engaged. The teacher has done their job, you've done your job, so you're prepared. You're not perfect, but you're prepared. You've followed the teacher's guidance. You know you don't know everything, you're not perfect, but you've been developing. And so you can honestly say, this preparation has been good for me, I'm ready for this test to reflect my current state on this subject matter. And the teacher uh, isn't going to try to trick me or put anything new on this final because the teacher is not against me, but they're for me. And so I know that might be a stretch for some of you and in your experience, but imagine that scenario. It, it would feel good. And in our passage today, Paul is urging the, the church at Corinth to take a final exam. This is the very end of the letter, a letter that personally I've benefited greatly from as we, start, we started studying it in January. We started at the very beginning of this year and we're finishing today. Um, and I believe that by this time, Paul's desire is that by this point in the letter, the church will have already been moved to a place of readiness. They would have already been moved to a place of preparation for this final exam that he's giving them. Uh, and like a good teacher, there's, re there's really nothing new in this final passage. He's, he's, I think he's beautifully condensing his letter-long desire for them, that they would turn from the sins that they've been stuck in, even though Paul believes that they're followers of Jesus. As followers, we can still be stuck in sin unnecessarily, and that's where the Corinthian church was. And he said, turn from that, turn from living in your sin, and turn to living in the power of God. And he's all book long. If you've been with us uh, for any of this time, you know that when Paul talks about living in the power of God, he's talking about living out of your weakness. You know, embracing your weakness so that God's power could be made perfect, could be put on display through your weakness. So today, we're going to see Paul urges this church to engage in some self-examination. It's like a, a, a final exam that you kind of give and take yourself. And he wants them to do that so that they can know their standing before God and that they can, they can know the opportunity that's right in front of them, the opportunity that they have to grow in relationship with the Lord Jesus. So I believe that today the Lord is urging us also towards self-examination. And that we can know our relationship with God. And that we, even today, we have an incredible opportunity uh, to, to experience Christ in us and to grow in our faith. So let's turn our attention to the passage. It's 2 Corinthians 
chapter 13, verses 5 through 14. Paul writes, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may, approve, we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. For this also we pray for, that you may be made complete. For this reason, I'm writing these things while I'm absent, so that when I'm present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So Paul urges self-examination and he bases it on the question, are you in the faith? Is Christ in you? And I think in the rest of this passage, Paul is unpacking marks that you can know Christ is in you by these three marks of having Christ in you, these three marks of you being in the faith. And the first, the first mark is simply that you can know. The Corinthians could know whether or not they were in Christ. And we today, we can know. And this is from verses 5 and 6 when he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Don't you recognize that Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail that test. And then he says in verse 6, I trust that you'll realize that we don't fail the test. Paul and the people who were writing this letter with him. And it's, it's kind of ironic. Warren Wearsby is a commentator, a pastor, and he pointed out all book, all book long, the Corinthian church has been examining Paul, saying, ah, is he really worth following? There's these other teachers that are more impressive than him. Should we really follow Paul? So all book long, they've been examining Paul. Now Paul says, you examine yourselves. Examine yourselves, Paul says. And Paul's assumption, again, all book long, is that Christ is in you. But he's given them room to reflect on that and say, unless, of course, you examine yourselves and, and you find that you failed this test. Either way, Paul's saying, you can know for yourself. And I think that's a profound implication because we need to know and the world around us needs to know their relationship with God. There's a lot of people, I've, t I've talked to them, and I know there's a lot of people I've never talked to that you've probably talked to who, who just don't know. And if you ask them the question, you know, if you, if you died, th this question, to me, it kind of just reveals <laughs> the, the assurance of their knowledge of their relationship with God. If you died tonight, uh, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell? Or, or what do you think would happen? Well, I'm not sure. I sure hope I'd go to heaven. 
Or I think I'd go to heaven. Well, why? Oh, it's because I've done good things or because I go to church. There's just a lot of people who don't know. But this passage and many, many other places, the Bible says a lot about how we can know. And so let's look at a couple of these places really quickly. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, God saved you by grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. I can't take credit for God saving me. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that I've done or that I will do. I can't boast about it. Salvation is a gift from God, not by works. You can know, if you believe that, that you're saved by grace, you can know that you're saved because it's not by anything you've done, but by something God's done. Or Romans 6.23, it says, what we deserve, what we all deserve, the wages of our sin is death. That's the paycheck that should be coming to us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life only through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you've committed your life to following Christ, you can know that even though you deserve death, you've received this gift instead, this gift of eternal life that's only found in Jesus. And if you ever have any doubts about your faith, uh, I'd encourage you to read the book of 1 John because the whole book is littered with ways that you can know. At the end of the book, he says, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so when you're, when you're helping people to know their, their, their relationship status with God and you're using God's word to help them, you're not being judgmental. You're using God's judgment, not your own. So they, they might think you're being judgmental. They might even say that and storm off. Hopefully, if you're pursuing friendship with them, they wouldn't do that because we should share our faith in the context of friendship. But uh, w- when we're sharing the truth of God's word, it's God's judgment, not yours. And it's, it's the judgment that we're, we're believing is true for ourselves and, and for the whole world. So I'm about to do something. Just I'm, I'm going to give you fair warning. I'm about to do something that I was warned could make for bad preaching, which is I'm about to introduce you to some big words. And uh, I went to a preaching workshop a couple weeks ago. We each outlined a passage and got some feedback. And I used these three words in my outline. And they said, maybe don't use, you know, big theological words. Uh, but I'm going to use them today because uh, even though I, I, I believe, I, I, I trust their feedback, as I spent time on this passage, I, I was just like, I have to know these words. And these words have been super helpful for me. The, not the words themselves, but the ideas they represent, the truth that they represent. So here are the words. Salvation is justification, sanctification, and glorification. And when I say salvation, it's, it's a right relationship with God. It's, it's what it means to be saved. It's, it's justification, which means when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. You, you now have a, per, a position of perfection in God's eyes. Not that you're actually perfect, but he just sees the perfection of Christ instead of seeing the sin that you and I, we we all deserve death. We all deserve hell, death, and the grave for our sin. But when you're saved, when you first commit your life to Christ, you are blameless before God. You're, You're justified. You're made right. So that's the first vertical line there. 
That it's a gift of God, not by works. No one can boast in that. You're, you went from spiritual death to spiritual life in, in justification. Then sanctification is where you see it's, it's trending up and to the right, but it's, it's going up and down. And that's the Christian life. That's, that's the process of slowly being, or it's normally slowly, being transformed into the image of Christ. But uh, the only reason it goes down is because we're still sinners struggling with sin. But as we live in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us, we should be trending up and to the right. And then the final vertical line is glorification, which will happen either when you die or when Christ comes, whichever comes first. And that's another vertical line that it's something that only God does. But in, in, in sanctification, uh, we have a role to play. We have an active responsibility. We're, we're supposed to make choices, set our minds on certain things. And in the other two, it's, it's just all God. But in sanctification, it's, it's God and us working together. So um, it's really necessary to like understand what it means to be saved, like to have, to have these ideas. You don't have to know the words, but you have to know I have been saved. There's nothing I can do to make myself more saved than I already am because I'm justified. But you also have to realize if I say that I'm saved, I'm also being saved continually. And at the same time, I will be saved one day. Everything will be made right. I will no longer struggle. I'll, th- there, there will be no more presence of sin. So there will be no more struggle. We'll just be made perfect and we'll get to enjoy God perfectly. So all that's necessary to the passage today because Paul is talking about knowing, knowing that you're in Christ through that sanctification process, through our present experience. Paul's saying, what's the trend of your life? What difference is Jesus making in your life? Or did you just kind of say a prayer and then flatline, right? Or did you just kind of say a prayer and, and I mean, you're up and down, but your trend is kind of a flat line. If that's the case, something is terribly wrong. And this ties into our passage, passage last week because Paul, out of his love for this church, was giving them some final warnings. He's like, I'm seeing a flat line trend and... Every fact is to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses is what Paul writes. And I'm about to come to you this third time and establish this fact of flatline trend in your Christian living. And that's a problem. And you might think, hold on, Ben, you just read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 where it says, it says clearly that we are not saved by good works and you also said that we have some work to do in working out our salvation and you know, making sure we don't flatline. So it sounds like you're saying, I can know that I'm saved by what I do. Are you saying that? Not really. I'm saying we're not saved by good works. We're saved for them. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? We're saved not by works, but by grace alone so that no one can boast. Then verse 10, for we're God's workmanship, created, brought to life in Christ Jesus to do good works. So enough 
theology in big words. Let's picture an apple tree now. An apple tree that's dead. When you picture that tree, does it have any fruit on it? It doesn't. It's a dead tree. But in the miracle of salvation, God brings a dead tree like you and me, any Christian, brings a dead tree to life. And then it starts producing fruit. Does the fruit make the tree alive and healthy? No. The fruit is a sign of life and health. First comes life, then comes the result of life. So Paul is saying, if you're an apple tree that's alive, but you're not producing any good fruit, examine yourselves. Are you really alive? Are you really healthy? Because what happens on the outside is a reflection of the inside. And Jesus said the same thing. A good, a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And because Paul loves this church, he loves these people, he's saying you've got to do business with what's going on inside of you because it is coming out. And you can know what's going on inside. So we don't do good, we don't do good works to be saved. We do good because we're saved. That's the biblical relationship between salvation by grace alone, only God's free gift to us saves us and makes us right with him. And then what we do, our responsibility in that ongoing process of being saved. So that's all under the first mark that we, we can know. And we have a responsibility to grow in that knowing. So the next two, uh, I promise they'll be shorter because we're going to look at them together. This is the second and third mark. And, and together they kind of form a sentence that I think summarizes this whole passage. We can know that Christ is in us by our maturing, which is shown in relationships. So that's the second and third point, is we can know by our maturing, shown in relationships with God and with others. And uh, before we unpack point number two, I just want to say, uh, it's really easy to have the wrong picture of what spiritual maturity is. Um, for example, just because I'm up here in front of you and talking doesn't mean I'm spiritually mature. Just because someone has gone overseas and served and told people about Jesus doesn't mean they're spiritually mature. Just because you've read the whole Bible or read it multiple times or have it memorized doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. Or if you sing really loud during the worship or if you don't sing at all doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. All of these wrong ideas, and there's many, many more of them, like how long you pray, what kind of words you use when you pray, if you can remember those three big words that I taught you earlier, doesn't mean that you're spiritually mature. And, and here's the two broad categories that personally I've been tempted towards and believed that these make up spiritual maturity. Just facts is the first one. Like, you know your stuff. You, you can delineate sanctification from justification and, and, and glorification. And you can point to the Bible passages that, you know, build those doctrines up. Even the demons, Satan's demons, they know the right facts about God. But they are not spiritually mature. They're not saved even. So 
just facts is not a characteristic of a spiritually mature person. Or you can look at practices like, man, that person, they have a quiet time every day for one hour, and I just, I just admire their, their walk with God because they've got these practices. They fast once a week. And, and I just, I mean, practices and facts, don't, don't hear me putting these down as bad things, but just because you have these practices in your life doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. The Pharisees had all sorts of religious practices They were looked on as the most religious people in Jesus' day, but Jesus said, unless you're more righteous than them, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. A righteousness that's above the most righteous humans around, that that, that you know of. That's what's required to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's only the righteousness of Christ. So both facts and practices I think they're important to maturity, but they're not the point. The the reason I share all this, and and I I will say, if you want to just take one thing away from this sermon, uh, here's the one thing I'd want to take away personally, is the point of maturity is enhanced relationship. So that's why we're looking at points two and three together. You can know Christ by your maturing, which is shown in relationships. So just to be clear, I'll say it one more time. The point of maturity, the evidence of maturity, is enhanced relationship. It's moving up and to the right in relationship with God and relationship with people. So let's, let's look at what maturity is. If, if we know what it's not, let's look at what it is. Maturity is becoming increasingly healthy, complete people. It's ongoing improvement over time. And like I said, it's shown through relationships with God and with people. You know a good tree by its good fruit. You know a mature person because their relationships aren't perfect, but they're commendable and they're improving and they're admirable. So in short, I guess you could say Uh, Maturity is becoming more like Jesus. Um, But I think it's important to remember that Jesus' perfection was manifested as a human, living among humans, relating with God. His his perfection was, was shown to us through relationships. So, okay. You might think, Ben, I get what you're saying. Uh, here's the three points you can know by maturing as shown in relationships but we read a passage about 10 or 15 minutes ago and uh, I don't know if you're still connected to what the word of God is saying and I I'm glad that you're asking like what's the connection that's a good question Um, because we're about to just go there and stay there because I see it everywhere I see it everywhere here so let's just start in verse 6 because I'm, I'm going to go from verse 6 to vor- verse 14, showing these last two points of how our maturing is shown through relationships. Paul says, I trust that you'll realize that we don't fail the test. Paul and his buddies who were with him are the we. And so, so Paul is like the teacher giving the 
the questions and the answers to the final before you walk into that classroom, Paul's saying you can look at us as your model answer, which, it, and he's, he's not claiming perfection here. Remember, maturity is not perfection. It's increasingly growing in that direction of becoming like Jesus. But he's saying, you can follow us as we follow Christ, so pay attention to these last verses that I'm, well, he wasn't writing in verses, but these last sentences that Paul's writing. And I think, I think we see maturity here in verse 9 when he says, we also pray that you would be made complete, that you would be mature. And Paul's saying, you can look at us as a model for maturity because we're here, like we're, we're here, we're, we're writing you these letters, we're visiting you, we're doing everything we're doing for your good, like for your maturity. So what that really means is that mature people want to make other mature people. Does that make sense? Mature people, they want to make other people mature. They want to see other people grow and be successful. And, and we see this even when Paul reminds them that, hey, uh, church discipline is going to come which means uh, Paul's going to have to throw down <laughs> kind of the hammer of judgment that we talked about last week in verse 10. Uh, he, he, he refers to this when he says, I'm writing these things to you now so that when I'm coming back to you, I don't have to be severe, so that I don't have to discipline you with the authority that God gave me because he gave me this authority to build you up, to make you mature and not to tear you down. <laughs> and so... Even in discipline, Paul is showing that he's doing everything for their maturity. And then in verses 7 through 9, Paul gives all of these markers like of true maturity. You know, just because you know your Bible or sing really loud in worship uh, doesn't mean you're mature. But, but these markers of, of maturity that he gives in verses 7 through 9, uh, they are strong indicators of maturity, which look at verse seven. He says, do no wrong, but do what's right. So if you, if you increasingly do what's right, you're becoming a mature person. And Paul says, look at us. We're praying for you that you would increasingly do what's right. So you do it yourself and avoid wrong, but also invite others into that type of life with you. And, and, and that's, a picture of a mature person, even if, look at verse seven again, even if we appear unapproved to you as we're seeking your good and seeking to build you up, if you think less of us, uh, Paul says essentially, I don't care. I mean, of course he cares because he loves them, but he's not going to work his whole relationship around what they think of him. He cares about them too much. He cares about them and that's shown in how he points them towards maturity. So maturity is doing the right thing for the good of other people, regardless what they think of you. And then in verse 9, he echoes that thought. He said, your success is our joy. We rejoice when we're weak in order for you to be strong. Again, he's, he's saying all of this about how you can know that you're in Jesus. It's be mature people and... And the picture of maturity is shown in your relationships. And Paul's saying, even if, if we're weak, as long as you're strong, like that's the type of relationship that a mature 
follower of Jesus has and pursues. And then in verses 7 and 9, you might notice Paul says, we pray. (laughs) We pray to God for these things. And so all of these markers of maturity, it's not just about man-to-man or human-to-human relationship, but also about your relationship with God. We pray for these things because we're powerless to like, I'm powerless to make you mature (laughs) in in many ways. I mean, I can do some things. I'm responsible to present the word of God clearly. I'm responsible to lead and to love and encourage. Uh, But in a sense, we're powerless. And I think that's what Paul is saying in verse eight. When I first read verse eight, he says, we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. I'm like, that sure sounds like Paul's saying that he's perfect, like doing nothing against the truth, but only, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think what Paul's saying is we're totally powerless. Like we, the the truth is like a wave coming at us and we can stand there and try to stop it, but we can do nothing against it. It is too powerful. But we can get on a surfboard and ride it. (laughs) Like, um, we can acknowledge ahead of time that the truth will prevail and we can get on top of that and make that our truth. We can do nothing against it, but only for it. And that's why I think the most mature people spiritually that you know and that I know the most mature people are the most humble people I know because they, can, they realize I can do nothing against the truth. The truth will prevail, so I might as well, you know, hitch my ride to that because we're powerless to be mature apart from relying on God. And so I see Paul saying, that's what we've been doing, verses 6 through 10. And now you do the same. And we see that in verses 11 through the end. He, he addresses them all. This is something they do together. But finally, you all rejoice. Paul said, we rejoice when we're weak, but when you're strong. Now you rejoice when you're weak, but when he's strong. You rejoice when you're weak, but she's strong. And then Paul says, be made complete. Some translations say, aim for perfection, right? Be trending up and to the right. If that's where... Your aim is, that's where you're going to go. And Paul says, we've been, he just said, he just said, we've been praying for you to be made complete. And then now Paul says, you do it. Be made complete. Do it together. Because this is a plural, like brethren, he's saying, finally, you all do these things. Do it together. And then Paul says, be comforted, which reminds me of how Paul started this letter. We've been comforted by God in the midst of severe affliction. Now you be comforted by God because if you're going to move up and to the right, you're going to need to be comforted in your repentance because you're going to sin and you're going to need to be comforted because it's just hard to feel weak and to be weak. So Paul says, be comforted. We've been comforted. Now you be comforted. And Paul says, be like-minded, live in peace and Man, for a church that I think is on the brink of, like, disaster, (laughs) the Corinthian church, uh, 
Paul's saying, we've been like-minded with you as much as we possibly can. We've lived in peace with you as much as we possibly can. Now you live in peace with each other. And division was a major problem in this church. You see it in both letters that we have in our Bibles to this church. Uh, Some were following false teachers and Paul is saying, no, be like-minded, be unified, live in peace with each other because your maturity, as you move towards maturity, it should be leading towards healthier and healthier relationships. And then he makes a great promise. The God of love and peace will be with you, which God is with everyone all the time. So what does he mean by this? He means you will experience God as you move up and to the right. You'll experience his presence, his being with you, in a way that if you're not interested in obedience and a life of obedience, you just can't have this type of experience and this type of knowledge with God. And you'll know, you'll pass the test when you experience this growth from setting your trajectory up and to the right. And all of this is done together, right? Because maturity is displayed through relationships. So when he says, greet, another, greet one another with a holy kiss, a kiss was a common first century greeting kiss each other on both sides of the cheek but he's saying a holy kiss it's so it's like greet each other but even let your greetings exude your desire for Christ likeness out of your heart greet one another with a holy greeting so let your growth and holiness spill over to to how you greet each other and then he says all the saints which saints is just another word for holy ones So greet each other in holy greeting and then all the holy ones greet you. And so a church that's on the brink of maybe not being a church anymore because they could be disciplined by the apostle that started this church, um, all these other believers are still sending them greetings, which to me is a profound sign of maturity. (laughs) That they're not treating them as an unbeliever. They're not treating them as... a a wayward brother until it's time up until the last minute they're giving them every opportunity to repent and to show themselves to be in christ they're not they're not casting judgment preemptively they're believing in them until the last minute and then paul concludes with a blessing which is the benediction the grace of the lord jesus christ the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all so paul says You have all that you need for maturity because all that you need is found in the triune God. So, if you take sanctification out of the Christian life or if you act like it's an optional part, you're left with a gospel lacking power for the present moment. It promises something about the past and about the future but it really kind of turns Jesus into what I've referred to before as eternal life insurance. You profess faith now. You trust that you'll possess heaven later. In the meantime, do your best, but just know that you're covered with insurance. So you're, you're good to go. And you're good to go right now. Like you're good to start enjoying eternal life right now. Because eternal life is knowing Christ and God the Father who he has sent. So Jesus is not 
selling anything. He's not eternal life insurance. He's eternal life. And maturing is not optional. It's a necessary part of this life with Christ. And it doesn't come automatically. And it requires you to be responsible. It requires effort. requires intentionality. It requires you to surround yourself with other people who will help you in that endeavor. And it's an up and down process. But you can be mature because Jesus is available and he is for your maturity. In Christ, you have all that you need. So we're going to finish with some application questions. I won't read them, but uh, they're going to be on the screen. And Paul encouraged this church to examine themselves. So we're going to spend some time examining ourselves. And uh, you don't have to use these questions, but you can use these questions as a guide. And as you reflect on these questions, you might be encouraged. You might want to rejoice. You might need to be comforted by God. And if that's the case, receive his comfort because in Christ you're forgiven. There's no condemnation. You might be like-minded or uh, be encouraged to live at peace uh, with other people that God has brought into your life to help you in this sanctification process. But I just want to encourage you uh, to talk to God honestly uh, and, and to trust that as you engage this process, the God of love and peace will be with you. So let's pray and just spend some time talking to God about your life. Feel free to look back up at the screen to direct and redirect your thoughts. And Lord Jesus, we ask during this time that you would speak to our hearts. Father, if there's anyone here uh, that you're telling them, hey, I'm not in you, please give them the courage to talk to someone about that. I pray this would be the day that they start their journey of following you. God, for those of us who haven't been growing as we should, uh, we know that your grace should have a powerful effect on our lives, so forgive us for our lack of effort, our lack of responsibility to grow. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for forgiving us and that your grace is effective to help us change. God, for those of us who are growing, uh, we just... Thank you for that growth and we admit we're helpless without you. We are totally weak. So please keep us humble so that we can keep maturing and keep growing. And Father, uh, we just pray, all of us, God, we pray that you'd keep maturing us. We say yes to anything you ask. 